Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. I'm so excited about today's episode because Chris and I have read the same book called Reading the Bible Again for the First Time by Marcus Borg, and we're going to talk about it today. We really had a great conversation around this book about the things that we rubbed up against, about the things that we agreed with, enjoyed, a new way to look at things. Yeah, I think we could have had a three-hour conversation about this book, um, but nobody would listen to a three-hour podcast. <laughs> so, but we have, um, yeah, we talked about kind of how do we see the Bible now in this 21st century? How how do we um, how do we understand some of the things written in it? Um, you know, and and what how was the Bible actually put together? Who wrote some of these books? You know, it's not a always who you think it is so lots of really cool also lots of really cool things that probably most people have never thought about speaking of thinking about these things uh, for all of our listeners we want to give you permission to decide for yourself on what you think about these things it's okay to disagree with us um, it's okay to agree with us it's okay to get mad and but you have permission to uh, decide for yourself, what you believe about, about the Bible, about the Christian faith, about any faith, um, even about how people interact with each other. That's something that you get to decide for yourself. Yeah. And we would encourage you that if you are in spiritual direction, this is a great topic to bring to your spiritual direction sessions and talk about it and wrestle with it there. uh, Because, you know, uh, it's a safe space to do that. If you're not in spiritual direction, we would encourage you to find one, you know, both Maggie and I are available. There are spiritual directors all over the country though. So just find one that uh, works for you. Yeah. And we'll put a link to spiritual directors, international directory. If you are interested in finding a spiritual director and of course, Chris and Maya's information will be in the show notes as well. Um, And if you would like to engage in a conversation with us about this, if there's something that struck you, either you agree with and you want to hear more about, or if you really disagree with and really want to let us know, we would love to engage in that conversation with you. And you can email us and our email address is in the show notes as well. Last episode, we talked about how we grew up seeing the Bible and some different ways at which Marcus Borg suggests we look at the Bible now, um, some reasons why we need a new lens to see the Bible today, and some, some various metaphors for seeing the Bible. And today, we are going to move into the New Testament and talk about um, some of the Gospels, uh, some of the writings of Paul. And it's going to be a really good conversation. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I guess the first thing that I wanted to bring up, Maggie, is I guess it's how, you know, how our New Testament is put together in, you know, it's, a, it's in an, an order, uh, but that is not actually the order in which those books were written. Right. So Borg reminds us that most of the writings of Paul, well, all of the writings of Paul were written before the the gospels the four gospels were written um and borg says that paul was pro- paul was probably writing in the 50s of of the first century and another thing you know we might want to go ahead and mention also is that there are 13 letters in the new testament attributed to paul but paul didn't necessarily write all of them the new testament has a total of 21 epistles and epistles are just simply letters that were written by someone to a, another person or a group of people. And our Bible attributes 13 of those epistles to Paul, but um, most scholars uh, and Borg says that there is a strong consensus among these scholars that Paul only wrote seven of those that are attributed to him. And those seven in in approximate chronological order are 1st Thessalonians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philemon, Philippians, and Romans. So that leaves six others that um, that scholars believe are, are probably not written by Paul, 
Um, and, and they say that, that three of them were probably written by some, some of his uh, disciples, you know, people that followed him and were familiar with his thought, but were not actually written by Paul. And those are Colossians, Ephesians, and Second Thessalonians. Yeah, and those were written in his name after his death. Right. Is what they yeah, think. It's, yeah. 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 Because it, it actually, I mean, the those introduction of those say, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you know. So, but, you know, Borg says that is a common, uh, a common thing for people in, in that era to write uh, in someone else's name, especially if they were a disciple of that person, because it would lead, um, you know, it would lend credibility to them. Um, so anyway, that leaves three more epistles that are attributed to Paul that that scholars believe are they're pretty certain were not written by Paul, and those are First and Second Timothy and Titus. And what's interesting about all that is how uh, you know they they are pretty sure that Paul didn't write those because it is like a completely different voice. You yeah. know, there's a lot less in in the ones of you know that they are very sure that he wrote. Thessalonians, Galatians, etc., are have a lot more love and grace in them, yeah. and talk about Jesus. And then the other ones are a, a lot more legalistic, which is why is lends itself to why they don't think that Paul wrote those. Yeah, I think I read somewhere in uh, either another board book or maybe I heard him talk on on a video that you know Paul has a really kind of has a bad name because of uh, a lot of things that are attributed to him. But if you look at those seven books that are pretty much, you know, exclusively written by Paul versus the ones that are not written by Paul, you get a completely different picture of who he was and what he thought was important. Yeah. So let's say, you know, first and second Timothy and Titus, which people think is absolutely not written by Paul. Do you think that they are important? Can we can we get any good from them? Well, I would say, you know, and this is my um, still like mind blown over this whole idea of like the Bible, viewing the Bible as a metaphor, the whole thing, not just Genesis, you know, and so it's kind of, you know, what questions do we ask about whoever this not Paul person was about first and second Timothy and Titus? Um, And it's, you know, again, who were they writing to? They weren't necessarily writing to us because they didn't we they didn't know that we existed at the time um and uh, so uh, you know is there wisdom i would like i would say looking at first and second timothy and titus um there is a little bit of you know understanding of the theology of uh, you know um, i think there's some trinitarian stuff in there but i would say if i you know if we wanted to not throw these three out completely, even though Luther, Martin Luther wanted to, which we'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, what is the, what is the message that seems to uh, be able to go through the filter of Jesus mm-hmm. and stay the same message, you know, that it doesn't have to change by going through the filter of Jesus. And I would say it's, you know, be a good example and love mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. You know, that is, you know, what, it looks like to be a leader, to be an authority figure, it means that you have to be above board the best that you possibly can. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. You know, reading the Bible through the lens of Christ, that is really how we should, should read it. Um, I have another book sitting right here. It's What Do We Do With the Bible by Richard Rohr. And it's a very short little book, like 60 pages. But he, in this book, he talks about uh, the the hermeneutic, and that is the kind of the lens through which you read the Bible and interpret it, the hermeneutic that Jesus used was one that we should also adopt. And so he goes through and kind of talks about what what is that lens through G- that Jesus used. Um, and, you know, he makes the, the comment, you know, that Jesus was, um, you know, according to modern day hermeneutics, was a very sloppy interpreter because he took like 613 laws from the old Testament and said, well, you know, we can just kind of summarize them in just to, you know, love God and love everybody else. Which he then took and made it one even later. (laughs) Right. 
And so let's just make it simple, people. <laughs> that's right. So if we read the Bible through that lens, through the hermeneutic of Jesus, well, what is loving? What brings us closer to love? And, uh, you know, I would argue that some of those things that Paul says or that, you know, are attributed to Paul and not actually Paul in First and Second Timothy don't bring us any closer to love. In fact, they push us farther away from it. Yeah, I, I know I've talked about this book several times, but it really kind of like changed my life when I read it. Um, a pastor in Atlanta named Andy Stanley wrote a book called Irresistible. And we'll put all of these books that we're talking about in the show notes, of course. But, um, you know, he says that, that that is the most important filter so through which we live our life. And the question is, what does love require of me? You know, because that is the 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 question that Jesus asked. That is how Jesus got down to those two commandments that then became one. Love others as I have loved you. And, uh, um, and, uh, so yes, to approach the Bible and this is not in irresistible. So I'm not like this, this is Maggie taking that book and, you know, making it her own. Um, but to approach the Bible with the lens of what does this teach me about love? What mm-hmm. does this teach me about God's character? Who is love? So that also brings up a question though, and I've, had these discussions with people and even my my former spiritual director is uh how do we really know what love is i've had this discussion and people will say well you just read the bible and it tells you what love is you know and if god is love and we read about things that god did and said and commanded well of course that's loving because god commanded it well can we say that Commanding the genocide of all the Canaanites is loving? Well, of course, that's what they would say. Of course it is. I mean, God commanded it. There's a reason for it. But I think that is completely tone deaf. I mean, how do you how do you reconcile? <laughs> Words have to mean something. And you yeah. can't look at something that is quite obviously not loving and call it loving. That's just, uh, you know, that's cognitive dissonance of the worst kind. And that idea of, you know, mass genocide that's in the Old Testament is something that is a huge hurdle for a lot of people when it comes to the Christian faith. Um, How can I possibly engage in this faith if the God that I'm supposed to believe in has called for this? Um, And that is why I think it's so important. uh, We talked about this last time to, to remember that the Bible is a human product and not a divine product. In Peter Enns' book, The Bible Tells Me So, he talks about um, how it's kind of, it was like a, a game of telephone, you know, the victors wrote the story and then it just continued to like, you know, just roll and snowball from there. And that's where we got mass genocide when it could have literally been five people living in a village that joined, that joined forces and got circumcised, you know, and decided, oh, okay, we're, we're on board with your God now, but we don't know, you know, we can only remember that it is a human product. Back to Paul, um, Borg talks about some central themes that Paul talks about in his letters. And I think one of the major themes is this idea of living in Adam versus living in Christ. And he, he talks about that a lot in I think in Galatians, I know in Romans, it, he expands upon it pretty um, expansively. But so this idea of living in Adam versus in Christ, you know, what does that mean to you, Maggie? As we, as we both know, I'm a huge Enneagram fan. And, um, and so in the Enneagram trainings that I do, I do talk about uh, living with a mask on, like understanding your mask, which would be like the in Adam piece and living you know, taking, paying attention to what the mask is and living outside of that, taking that off and living mask free. And that would be your, your truest self, your false self versus your true self. And I think a lot of that is that in Adam versus in Christ. And I'm going to talk very like Christian easy here for a second in a mentoring ministry that I'm a part of. We talk about this a lot, but we talk about where we're getting our needs met. Are we getting our needs met for in, you know, in, 
in the world, you know, through our flesh, through our own earthly desires, or are we truly seeking God for our needs to get met? And so in the, my, um, like outside of reading Marcus Borg, like that's how I would have described it is, okay, am I truly depending on God to get my needs met? But what Borg says that I really loved is that he said the life in Christ is a life that's marked by freedom, love, kindness, and joy. And I think when you take that filter, it very much, again, fits into that Jesus filter of love. So what does it look like for Maggie to be free, to be loving, to be loved, to be kind and have joy, um, which is going to be different for what that looks like for Chris. And so I don't think that there is one cookie cutter in Adam versus in Christ, because we're all uniquely created. And so how we experience the in Christ life, the, the free, the loving, the kind and the joyful life. That that's what I, that's what I think of when I think of in Adam versus in Christ. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I also see this dichotomy as kind of mimicking the, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil versus the tree of life in Genesis. Um, I've, I've come to see in them, of course, metaphorically, not literally, but uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is living out of your own flesh and out of your own ideas of what is right and wrong. Whereas the tree of life is that tree is, is that metaphor that means, you know, living out of your connection with the divine. And um, as you said, your, your true self, your, uh, your deepest self um, that's marked by freedom, love, and joy. I think Paul also brings in this dichotomy of living in the flesh versus living in the spirit and living in Adam versus in Christ in Galatians also, where he talks about this, this dichotomy between Hagar and Sarah, which is in Galatians chapter four, kind of starting in verse 21 and onwards, where he talks about, um, you know, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. And his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. And, and he says, these things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, which embears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. But, you know, the, he contrasts that with, uh, with Sarah, which was, you know, the mother of Isaac, and this represents the, the covenant of the new Jerusalem, with the, which is kind of this, this new living in the spirit of Christ. Um, at, at least that's the way I interpret it, uh, versus, you know, Hagar corresponds with kind of living under the law. And I think that's similar to what he's talking about with Adam and Christ. Uh, would you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I can see that the the law depending on how you view that because there's a law that is legalistic and can bring up a lot of hatefulness in our hearts you know if it's already you know the law just gives us an excuse to be hateful but then there's the law of love which which of course is that filter that we you know approach our relationship with the divine with you know that we are just loved and that we can be in love with a with God. And, um, and so that shift of perspective of, uh, um, you know, am I loved because I'm doing the legalistic thing? Well, that's very in Adam, but am I loved period? Like no ifs, ands, or buts, or despite of, you know, I am just loved. And then you, um, allowing that to cover us. And here I, here I go again with all my Christianese training, but, um, you know, if we are covered by this divine love, that changes how we interact with people in the world. And so I think that that is more of that, like in Christ, the, the true self, the, the closest that we can be to our, you know, healthiest, you know, most divine self, if I'm even allowed to say that, um, is that in Christ, you know, it's, it's how you, how you view love and uh, have that go outward. 
um, I was listening to uh, a sermon the other day and, and the pastor was talking about friendship and, uh, um, and how a true friend is faithful. But the implication is that a true friend is faithful to the Bible. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, to me, that felt very of that, like in Adam, like, okay, we get to take the Bible and uh, decide how good of a, of a friend somebody else is by how well they mm-hmm. live up to all of these <laughs> laws that weren't even <laughs> written by, <laughs> by Paul probably, or, you know, yeah. by the, anyways. I actually, I texted a friend and was like, would you, uh, you know, put your like love for me and our friendship or your love for your husband over your faithfulness to the Bible? And she was like, well, I follow Jesus and the Bible helps Mm -hmm. me understand who Jesus is. But first and foremost, I follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just was so like, duh, (laughs) in that moment, (laughs) you know? And so I felt like that was a very much more in Christ response but the sermon was more in Adam response because of the legalism and the law, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Too often the church uses the Bible to figure out how they're supposed to act towards people or who they're supposed to love even versus who they're not supposed to love, who they're supposed to exclude. But, you know, the the Bible, I, I see the entire arc of the, the Bible from you know, Genesis to maps as to being becoming more and more inclusive. What is and, maps? Yeah, just the maps at the you know that come at the end of the Bible. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. That, that's, sorry. <laughs> that's a uh, that's an old Southern Baptist joke. <laughs> Genesis uh, to maps. That's hilarious. Oh, that's funny. I had not heard that. Um you know, I wasn't really raised in the church. So that was, right. anyway. All right. So go ahead. So, so from yeah. Genesis to maps. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the whole arc of scripture from Genesis to maps um, shows more and more inclusivity. Um, you know, I think the Old Testament shows, you know, more God was constantly trying to tell the Israelites, I love everybody. I love everybody, you know, and let's bring some more people in. And then in the New Testament, we see, I love the Gentiles too. Bring them in. You know, and but it just seems so odd to now say, but that doesn't include the LGBTQ plus community. It it can't include that because, of course, Paul says that they're sinful, you know, and that can't even in, include women in, in full, you know, full inclusivity in the church and using their full gifts in the church because Paul says they can't do that. I just don't understand that that mindset, you know. It's, it's infuriating. Um, one thing that I love about the old Testament, again, like you said, that it was, there was always a way for the non-Israelites to be joined into this community, to be a part Mm -hmm. of it, even Mm -hmm. if they weren't born into it, like most of them were. Um, and so, and just like in the, the new Testament, there's always a way to be able to join this community to be Mm -hmm. a part of it, to be loved. And Chris, you and I are on the same page about this, but we believe that everybody is loved, whether you have, uh, you know, decided to join this community or not, you are still loved because you are created in the image of God. And Borg even talks about this, that there is the same arc of scripture that God is for the marginalized and for the oppressed, that God has always been for equity, you know? And so this, using the Bible to exclude people is a total misuse of the Bible. And I really think that that would be, I really think that that pains God to see how people are using this book because it's not loving and it is not who I believe God to be, who is love. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, there's the passage in Isaiah where God was saying, yeah, is, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? But it's I think it's pretty obvious to us now looking back, but I don't I don't believe it was obvious to the Israelites that God wants the marginalized to be taken care of mm-hmm. and 
you know, if you're not taking care of the marginalized, then what good are you, you know, almost. And it was even obvious to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who uh, she had, she said these words, she's saying this called the Magnificat or Mary song um, in Luke. So she's pregnant. She doesn't even know that she's giving birth to the Messiah really. And she, she says that God has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away. And he remembers the merciful and that that was promised to our ancestors. And so there are some Israelites that got it, you know, and, uh, and knew that this was God's character this whole time. And then, uh, you know, Jesus just really came and, <laughs> and uh, really showed it, you know, just continued to give the same message that the equity is important to God. Yeah, so that that's a good segue, I think, into talking about the way of life in Christ that Paul talks about, um, and I think that it, it could also segue into talking about the Gospels because, you know, living in Christ is is living a certain way, and we see, I think, very clearly what that way is in the life of Jesus in the Gospels, so. Jesus, you know, in, in John, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we've taken that, I think, to mean that Jesus is the gatekeeper, you know, the only only path that you can go through to get to God. Um, I disagree with that now. I think that, you know, if we're reading these things metaphorically, I think Jesus was saying, look at me, look at the way that I'm living. This is the way of life. This is the way of truth. And this is the way to God. This is how you do it. And um, just, you know, watch and learn. Yeah. To embrace the way of Jesus, this way of loving other people is to live, it is to better understand how God interacts with us. And I think that is how we are, how we see God you know, and how we understand God and that makes us better people. So that is a good transition, I guess, into talking about the Gospels. And uh, I mean, we've already been talking about it in some way, but let's actually talk about the books. Um, so, you know, the, we have four Gospels in our canon. Um, there are others, though, that didn't make it in, right? Oh, Yes. <laughs> A lot, <laughs> a lot yeah. of which was um, what I learned in my church history class was voted in on uh, or was, was literally voted in, you know, that yeah. they took a vote. So yeah, it's anyway. consensus, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Anyway, so I mean, there's the Gospel of Thomas, there's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, uh, the Gospel of um, was there a Philip? I can't remember. I think so. Yeah, I just remember so, the gospel of Thomas is the one where um, he says that a woman can't enter the kingdom of God unless she transitions to a man or to become a man. Um, and so, and in my mind, I was like, oh, good. They did know about transgenderism back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Cynthia Bourgeault has a really great book about, um, it talks a lot about the gospel of Thomas. It's called, called The Wisdom Jesus. And and she quotes from the Gospel of Thomas extensively to talk about the the wisdom, kind of these little pithy sayings that Jesus said, which is, you know, we see some in our Gospels, of course, but in the Gospel of Thomas, it's it, it's much more extensive. Um, and she thinks that the reason the Gospel of Thomas was excluded was because uh, the guys who you know got together and talked about what should be included, they just didn't have any idea what what the, Jesus was saying. I mean, they, they couldn't understand it. So they said, well, yeah, if we can't understand it, then certainly the peasants can't understand it. So let's not include it. So we ended up with just four in our Bible, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Martin Luther ordered the canon as we have it today. He ordered it based on how comfortable he was with each of the the letters and the gospels. And that's why John is the last one, because it seems so different from the synoptic gospels. Um, but I, I would say that it shows a much more compassionate Jesus than the other three, but, and then that's why the letters that 
Paul didn't write are at the end. And especially Mm -hmm. Revelation is the very Mm -hmm. last one. He wanted to get rid of all of those, but that would have been an uproar and would have left the New Testament itty bitty. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me what or tell our listeners what um, synoptic gospels are. Oh, the synoptic gospels are the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they are the most similar. And then the, um, the Gnostic gospel, which is the gospel of John or the, the, got the history of the life of Jesus written by John is much more, uh, it's more mystical. It has a lot more about the divinity of Jesus and, um, mm-hmm. and that, and so some people are very uncomfortable with that. Which is funny because, um, you know, 50 plus years ago, people would say, if you're going to read anything, start with the Gospel of John. Mm, But then there was so much like, let's get rid of it. It's so like different from all the other ones. So um, I just think that's fascinating. Well, Borg says that he believes that the Gospel of John is actually the, how he does, how does he word it? The risen spirit of Christ speaking through the church. Oh, what does that mean to you? Well, I I think that means, um, you know, John apparently was written much, much later than uh, the other gospels. And even after the letters of Paul, which of course came before the gospels anyway. So, but John, they, uh, they think was written even after, um, you know, Matthew, Mark and Luke Acts. And I say Luke Acts because Luke wrote Acts as well. And it was kind of really one book. So, John, they think, was written like in the 90s or even as late as 110. And so this kind of, this book talks about how the risen Christ, the spirit of Christ, which, you know, I think we, we would say, you know, the risen Christ lives through the church and permeates the church and, and, and helps um, give guidance to, to the church. And uh, it was written as this, you know, late first century or early second century church um, and what they believed about Christ at that time, as opposed to what they thought Jesus of Nazareth actually said in the you know first few centuries of the, of the new millennium. So does it, I mean, does that answer the question? Does it make sense what I mean by the risen yeah. Christ speaking through the church? Yeah. So, you know, that also brings up this concept that Bork brings up of the historical Jesus versus the canonical Jesus. The historical Jesus is the literal man, Jesus of Nazareth, who, you know, we're, we're pretty certain actually was a real person who walked on the face of the earth because there are other documents outside of the Bible that reference this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's the historical Jesus. Now, we really don't know a whole lot about that person because, you know, Jesus didn't write anything down. Um, There were very few eyewitnesses uh, accounts in the Bible of Jesus. And so what we have instead is not an account of the historical Jesus, but what Borg calls the canonical Jesus. And that is what the Bible itself tells us about that person which is not necessarily the same thing as what that person was like or did or said. Right. Each of the four gospel writers um, had a a different agenda for writing Mm -hmm. each of those gospels. um, And they have a different view and they still bring their humanity in writing, Mm -hmm. you know, what they, what they heard or what they, who they talked to and what they saw. I think agenda well, I, I agree. I think that maybe gives the wrong connotation. And I think they, you know, they were not, they were not trying to do something nefarious or anything, but I think they were, you know, they had a purpose in mind when they an wrote that book. Yeah. They had a specific audience, yeah. a purpose behind why they were writing and, um, and, and a, and a viewpoint and a context and all of that plays into what they wrote. You know, there's one gospel writer that, specifically wrote to the Jews, you know, mm-hmm. to show that this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Um, so that it, that's kind of what I meant by agenda, but it really is more yeah. the audience to uh, to help them see 
what that writer already knew. And there's one that I think it's John that wrote to everybody, you know, that was the Mm -hmm. widest net that was spread out, um, which, you know, in a, in a world where we like to be exclusive, that probably makes sense why John felt so like, Oh no, this is too different. You know, let's put it, (laughs) you know, not Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, Christians over the years have been completely exclusive when it comes to Mm -hmm. their Christian faith. But um, we're definitely seeing that a lot today. When I was in seminary, I took a class called Biblical Themes and, um, and uh, we had to pick a theme to write, you know, our paper on that was, you know, from the Bible. And, And I did Jesus as a spiritual director. And, and I only, my professor said that I wouldn't be able to fit all four gospels into um, into a 12 page paper. And so he recommended that I just start with one and I was like, whatever, I'm just going to do all four. And I only got through the book of Matthew and I still, you know, had like, you know, I could have written like 30 pages on it. Um, and when we were sharing kind of like our takeaways, what we learned from our papers in class, um, uh, another woman in class said that she wrote, uh, her paper was on how Jesus, uh, treated and approached women in the gospel of John. And uh, she was talking about his compassion and whatnot. And I was like, Oh, I didn't see that in my paper. And so I I mentioned that, um, that I was like, you know, I felt like because I only read Matthew and I didn't realize this until I read Matthew and was looking for the compassion at Jesus, especially toward women and the oppressed and whatnot. I didn't, that wasn't in Matthew, but that's in Luke and John. And my professor, so smart, and he just said, kind of, it's very similar to what Borg says about, you know, the writers are bringing their own personality. And it's not that Jesus isn't compassionate, but maybe the writer, so maybe Matthew didn't have that lens of compassion to look through. And so that part of Jesus was lost on Matthew, whereas Luke Mm -hmm. and John saw that because that was part of their own makeup. So I think this is just further evidence that the Bible was written by humans that brought their stuff and their lens, you know, in order to uh, to write these documents that we still read today to help us. You know, that's why I think that's why there's four different Gospels instead of just one, you know, and there, again, like you said, there's several more. But I think that, um, you know, we do have four different accountings of the life and personhood of Jesus. And so to take mm-hmm. all those together and say, all right, what's the best picture that we can get just from these four. And then we add in our own experiences with our faith and whatnot to, uh, to get the most complete picture of Jesus that we possibly can. Yeah. I think uh, th- that reminds me of something that uh, Richard Rohr says in this, this other book that I re- referenced earlier called what do we do with the Bible? Um, there's a chapter in there that says what the Bible is not saying and the first thing is that that the Bible is not saying that there is only one inerrant way of communicating the truth. And he goes on, this is clearly and directly taught by giving us four gospel accounts of the same incident, incidents, which usually differ considerably, sometimes on major points. For example, which account of Jesus's words at the Last Supper is the true official one? Which leper story is fake news and which is authentic journalism? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that idea, you know, that idea that we have four gospels is proof that, you know, we don't have to have one way of saying it. And <clears throat> we also don't have the very words of Jesus. You know, we talked about that earlier with the historical Jesus. The entire New Testament was written in Greek, and we're pretty certain that Jesus did not speak Greek. So <laughs> as Richard Rohr says, as Rohr says, if 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 it was so important for us to have the actual very words of Jesus, then Jesus would have been born in you know the twentieth century, where we could record it on, on audio and video, and have it you know for all eternity. Yes, and Jesus would have done that in every single language. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Just thinking about, I feel like every time I have to. Uh, uh, I feel like every time I go on like Bible gateway and I have to like do the pull down menu to like find another translation, English translation of the Bible, the list just gets longer and longer and longer. Mm -hmm. And so again, all, every single one of those translations, a lot of them are the best 
understanding of how, uh, you know, Greek was written back then, because we don't even have that, that same Greek that they had Mm -hmm. in the year zero, you know, in the year 100 and whatnot. Um, The Greek that's spoken now, the best that we have is still a different language. Yeah. And so, and we don't even have those documents. I think the oldest document we have is like 800 from like 800 AD, something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it is not year 100. Basically, we don't have the original manuscripts. And even if we did, we don't even have that same language. We don't know how to interpret that or to translate that. So all of the English translations that we do have are still a different understanding of how the, that language that we have from 800 AD works. And that's why there's so many translations. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Obviously I'm passionate about this. <laughs> and I'm like, we don't actually know what was said or what right. they said. So yeah. not only are they trying to remember what was said when they wrote it down, which is why it's different. Mm-hmm. But even if we like did have it, we still wouldn't even have the one from that time. So what you're not saying is that the Holy Spirit gave them the exact words that they needed to write down because those were the exact words Jesus said. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. Um, and, you know, I mean, do I believe it's possible that the Holy Spirit told them whatever and uh, they still use their human lens to to write it for their audience, to write it in a way that... Um, you know, made sense to them to portray the Jesus that they wanted. You know, we don't know. We can ask those questions when we get to heaven. That's the beauty of spiritual direction is that it's a safe place for people to wrestle through with, you know, how do I view the Bible? What does this teach me? You know, what is in this for me today? Um, Or for me, you know, what is what's in this for my life? What do I think about all these things? You know, it's okay if you believe that the Bible is literal, that it was truly written by the Holy Spirit um, through the pens of those of those men um, back, you know, in year zero or whatever, year 100, um, you know, or if you are okay with it not being 100% historically accurate, you know, that's something that we all get to wrestle with. And mm-hmm. that's why I like spiritual direction, because my spiritual director lets me wrestle through all of those and she never judges me for being a heretic. Mine too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is the same person. In right. case you don't know. We, we have the same spiritual director. You know, I wonder if we want to talk just a little bit about the, the miracle stories that we see in the, in the gospels about Jesus. You know, this goes back to the previous episode where we talked about, um, pre-critical naivete and post-critical naivete and you know pre-critical naivete i would have said of course jesus walked on the water he was god he could do that he could defy the law of gravity and and the law of you know the surface tension of the water could hold him up (laughs) but now of course i would say that's no probably not physically possible and and i know it's not physically possible and i don't think it actually happened that way but what does it mean you know what is the deeper meaning behind jesus walking on the water and you know calling peter out of the boat um there you know those are the kind of questions you have to wrestle with now when you don't take it literally yeah which that was a big shock to me when i read that like it just i realized that it never occurred to me that i didn't have to take the miracles as historical truth or his, with historical accuracy, that it could be a metaphor. And uh, where I am today is still very much God can do whatever God wants to do. And those probably happened in some way, shape or form. Do I know exactly what happened? No. But do I think that it's possible? Yes. So I'm not Maggie where she is today is not ready to say that those may or may not have happened. Uh, okay. But that's something that I'm wrestling with. It's, it's still right. part of the journey and the process. But at the same time, I can hold the possibility that it's all metaphor and mm-hmm. be okay with that and still ask whether it's historical truth or if it's metaphor and poetry or whatever, it still has an application for me in my faith journey. Yeah. And that's, that's 
great. You know, that's if that's what where you are now, that is, um, you know, we, we talked about in our spiral dynamics episode that everyone has the right to be where they are and wherever brings them life, um, whatever that state is. And um, I personally have moved on from the fact or, or from the belief that those could even possibly be literally true. I, you know, I just have decided, you know, just can't, can't happen. <laughs> you know, how, how can you feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? You know, yeah. if, that, that if Jesus was fully human, then the laws of physics would apply to Jesus. Right. I get, I get that. <laughs> and, and I, I, I really appreciate Borg and, and how he says that Jesus, um, if we, if we assign all these, these supernatural characteristics to Jesus, then he ceases to be a real human being that we can actually emulate. But he, I, th- I think the whole reason that, you know, that we have these writings of Jesus is so that we can learn about how to live. And, and, you know, he, we have to realize that he was fully human. So therefore we can actually emulate him, but we don't have to go around thinking that we can walk on water or turn water into wine. You know, there are deeper metaphorical meanings there that we can extract without, you know, having to think that we can do the things that Jesus did. So I have a question for you then, um, because I, I have gone to, uh, to events where people have talked about experiencing miracles, like what we've seen or what we've read about in the scriptures. Um, I have a directee that has taken part of miracles and whatnot as well. So uh, how would you, and I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just wondering how, how would that be in direction for you? If your directee believed in not only the miracles of Jesus, but also saw these miracles happening in 2021 what would that be like for you to sit with them um i i would have to uh, just accompany them along where they go you know i would let them be where they are let them talk about miracles as though they were uh, real um, if that's what they believed i would just have to let them go with that belief because that's what brings them life and where they are now um, you know, as we've said many times in the past, our jobs as spiritual directors is not to impart our beliefs upon our directees. And so um, I would just have to, to accompany them there and let them let them go. Uh, because I used to believe it too. And I know that, you know, people can make changes, people can make a transition in, in their consciousness over time. And it's not my job to do that, though. Yeah, that's good. Chris, as we're wrapping up here, what would you say are your biggest takeaways from this book? I think my biggest takeaways from Borg's book, number one, is that when when you give your perm- yourself permission to not read the Bible literally, in other words, you can read it metaphorically or even allegorically or whatever, then the Bible really comes alive in a different way for you. And it has for me um, because... I'm forced to really wrestle with the text and not just take it on its literal surface meaning. You know, I have to, I have to sit with something. I have to think about it, pray about it, or, you know, just kind of soak in it and see what does this really mean beneath the surface? So that's, that's really the main, the main takeaway I think that I have. What about you? Um, I love that the, I've read a lot of books and I have a friend that is, um, that it is really practices this, that idea of, uh, you know, reading the Bible, like Jesus, the Jewish man would have read the Bible or mm-hmm. at least the old scriptures to make connections, be, to take two seemingly, you know, disconnected parts of the scriptures and, and bring them together to see that it is the same God and it is the same message. Um, and that there is a connection there that they were both meant to be connected in that way. Um, I think it's just really a cool way to, uh, you know, to approach the, the Bible of, uh, you know, um, is there a connection here? You know, what does that mean for me? And, uh, and I think that's something that 
were sort of taught in spiritual disciplines like Lexio Divina, but at the same time, not, <laughs> you know, it's, what does this mean for you? As long as you still take it literally. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, to be able to hold that in, it can be literal and not literal at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. it's okay to, it can be both and not either or, uh, which is something that Borg says a lot about yeah. just a lot of different things in the Bible. But my biggest takeaway is that, that in Adam versus in Christ, that the, the life that is a life um, truly covered in the, the love of Jesus, um, which that's so Christianese. And I don't know why I keep apologizing for being so Christianese, but, um, but living through grace. So living by grace produces the same qualities as this in life or in Christ's life, which is marked by freedom and joy and peace and kindness and love. And so to look for those fruits, so to speak in my life and to uh, just be grateful that, that God is working in my life is, um, you know, and I know that that is true if I see freedom and joy and love and kindness and peace in my life. Yeah. And I would also say to our listeners that just because we have a fixed canon of the Bible doesn't mean that God no longer speaks to us. And, you know, in fact, I, I, I think that God has been speaking since, you know, the beginning of time and certainly didn't stop when the canon was finalized. So let's remember that. And um, there's this idea that, you know, that, yes, of course, God still speaks, but then you have to take it back to the Bible to see if it jives with what the Bible says. And I just think, how backwards is that? Because God spoke before the Bible. God could speak after the Bible. It's not like the Bible is, you know, the entire canon of what god wanted to say to all of humanity at all all times well and that that goes back to that idea of asking like the the filter of life as a jesus follower is asking the question what does love require of me yeah you know it it sounds so simple to say that but it's so complicated because (laughs) because you know what is love what is the loving thing to do but if we choose to put that foot forward of, okay, is this loving? Is this kind? Is this going to help somebody feel free or feel loved or, or experience joy? Then, then that is, you know, I think God speaking through us to help other people experience a really full life. Yeah. Oh, how the world would be different if we would always just ask ourselves, what is the loving thing to do in this situation? 